Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Wallner. This is an update episode of Season 7, Call Me Shelley, The Mysterious Disappearance of Michelle Juleson. If you've not listened to the previous episodes of this season, you'll probably want to do that first. How would you get abducted from 140 American to 300 block East Broadway without somebody seeing it on a Tuesday afternoon? I think something happened to her. I think somebody took her. You need to call the police and you need to get yourself a protection order. I told her any time after two o'clock she could stop by and pick him up and she never did show. Bartender at the Burnt Creek Burnt Creek Club. And I was specifically looking for that car, Shelly's car. Was one of the group allegedly harassing Shelly at the bar. But there was two, two railroad workers, and I thought they talked to one. The evidence sheets should have still, and there should have been copies of it all attached to the report. Because I don't think they did any kind of a job at all on trying to find Shelly. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about Don Schaefer, the Bismarck police lieutenant whom Shelley claimed had been harassing her at the Burnt Creek Club. According to Shelley Juleson's cold case file, a file that Bismarck Police Department allowed me to review, investigators were made aware of the alleged harassment in 1994 during the initial investigation. Yet, according to the same police file, Don Schaefer was never questioned about the harassment or about Shelley's disappearance. Not in 1994, nor in any of the investigations that followed years later. Also, in this episode, I will touch on questions and comments from some of you. Welcome back to Call Me Shelley, The Mysterious Disappearance of Michelle Juleson. I want to talk about Lieutenant Don Schaefer, but let's take a moment to go back in time and remind ourselves exactly what Shelley's life was like at the time of her disappearance, because let's face it, some very disturbing things were taking place at the time. It's August of 1994, and Shelley Juleson is a 26-year-old single mother of one. Her son, Jaden, is three and a half. Shelley and Jaden are living in a simple trailer home at 716 West Suite Avenue in Bismarck. Because, so, 
Apparently, Shelley isn't really big on housekeeping, and when police later search her trailer, they will find it not so much in disarray as just, well, really sloppy. There are clothes everywhere, on the floor and on the furniture, and dirty dishes on the counter, table, and in the sink. And according to statements Kevin Woodworth will make to police later, Shelley's trailer is in poor working condition too. Her stove, air conditioner, and a refrigerator are not working properly. Just four days before her disappearance, Kevin needs to drop off an extra $50 so she can buy some fresh food. Shelley works as a blackjack dealer for the Fort Abraham Lincoln Foundation, and according to Kevin, her hours at work have been cut back, so she's struggling financially, something law enforcement will confirm later, and it's not just that Shelley doesn't have any money, she owes a lot of money too. Medical bills, telephone bills, and collection notices are piling up in her mailbox. Shelley is basically broke. Broke and also likely a little bit frightened because, as we have learned, some very peculiar things are happening. Shelley is feeling harassed and in more ways than one. She tells multiple friends she's getting hang-up phone calls at home. These friends will later tell investigators that Shelley said the calls were coming at all times of the day and night. In fact, when Kevin drops off the $50 for food, Shelley asks him, Hey Kevin, how do I get caller ID? Which was the technology at the time to see what phone number was calling your landline. It seems that Shelley wanted to get to the bottom of all this harassment she was experiencing. Now, harassing phone calls are one thing. By definition, a phone call requires some kind of distance between the two parties. And when you're feeling scared or harassed, just knowing that a potential threat is at a distance, well, that's a little bit comforting, I suppose. But the harassment of Shelley Juleson isn't just happening from a tame and safe distance. Whoever is harassing Shelley, they're getting very close. Close and physical. Remember, Shelley's Ford Thunderbird has been vandalized, the driver's side door keyed, scratched up with a sharp object. This is confirmed in the police report that Officer Julie Thompson files later when the Thunderbird is discovered on August 8th, just a stone's throw from the entrance to the Comfort Inn Hotel Lounge. Thompson notes the damage on the driver's side door in her report. Others confirm this damage to Shelley's car, including Tony Holm, bartender at the Burnt Creek Club, and Shelley's friend and on-again, off-again boyfriend. And the Ford Thunderbird may have been keyed more than once, although I've not been able to confirm this. And Shelley's friend Larry also stated to police that there was a hole in the radiator, possibly also the result of vandalism. So much for that safe distance of an anonymous phone call. This is her car we're talking about. This is physical, hands-on, and close. In interviews with investigators, more than one of her friends will say that Shelley suspected that someone had been tailing her home from the Burnt Creek Club, following her in another vehicle. This also possibly on more than one occasion.
And there's this. According to her parents, Wes and Linda Jolson, Shelley said that at one point she had heard a car slowly cruising through her trailer court and a woman's voice yelling something like, you stay away from him. Wes and Linda and many others also recall Shelley saying she'd been harassed at work at the Burnt Creek Club. The story goes that Tony Holmes' friends were harassing her, calling her a slut and a whore. And Shelley stated specifically that one of these persons was a real obnoxious jerk named Schaefer, a police officer at Bismarck PD. In my interview with Tony Holm, he acknowledged that Lieutenant Don Schaefer was indeed a good friend of his at the time, even if Tony downplays the seriousness of Schaefer's comments to Shelley. We know that Shelley routinely called friends in the middle of the night, sometimes as late as 3 a.m. While learning about Shelley's life, I've attributed this behavior to her work schedule. Shelley and her friends worked swing shifts from late afternoon until the bars closed. 3 a.m. for Shelley was probably more like what 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. feels like for those of us who work 9 to 5. It's a little too early to go to bed. But now, now I can't help but wonder if perhaps Shelley's nights were restless for other reasons, too. Imagine for a minute you are a sleepless 26-year-old Shelley Julson laying in bed inside your simple and half-functioning trailer home. The windows are open because, well, it's August in North Dakota and your air conditioner is broken. In the other room, your son sleeps peacefully, and from the sound of it, most of the outside world is asleep, too. But not you. You are awake and alone, alone with nothing but your own thoughts and a view of the shadows across your bedroom ceiling. And what are your thoughts? What do you think about? Do you consider how you're ever going to get out of debt? Are you pulling the covers up close and thinking about that disturbing reminder you see every time you walk up to your own vehicle and look at the driver's side door? Outside it's quiet, but you know the silence might be shattered at any millisecond with the ringing of your telephone or the sound of a car snaking its way through the trailer park, idling right past your front door. This is Shelley's world in August of 1994. As a 26-year-old single mother, do you even know what options are available to you? Do you go to the police? Do you go to the police and tell them everything and then add, oh, and by the way, one of the people harassing me is one of your guys? What would you do? After this break, we'll learn about Don Schaefer, the man Shelley claimed was harassing her a man hired by the city of Bismarck, North Dakota, with taxpayers' money to serve and protect. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details.
Donald Schaefer was born in 1945, and he passed away in 2020 at the age of 74. He worked for the Bismarck Police Department for 27 years until he took a sudden early retirement in 1996. I'll tell you more about why he made that sudden decision in a minute. During his career, Schaefer rose to the rank of lieutenant, but not without controversy. Back in 1977, he was suspended for 10 days without pay for public drunkenness, driving under the influence of alcohol, and lying to an investigative officer. Also, a written reprimand was placed in his file, and he was demoted from his then rank of corporal. But Don Schaefer didn't take that lying down. Instead, he filed a civil suit against the chief of police, who had demoted him, and asked for $45,000 in punitive damages. Later that year, Schaefer dropped his lawsuit, but only after the chief of police promoted Schaefer to corporal again. The official statement on Schaefer being reinstated to corporal was that the decision had nothing to do with Schaefer's lawsuit. Then in 1993, the year before Shelley disappeared, Don Schaefer found himself in trouble again. This time he was suspended for two days for some kind of verbal confrontation with a citizen. And yet, not long after that, he received an internal rating of, quote, considerably above standard. Then, in 1996, so two years after Shelley's disappearance, Don Schaefer was arrested. On July 16th of that year, the Bismarck Tribune published a front-page article with the headline, Officer Facing Assault Charge. Reporter Jessica Lentz wrote the following. Bismarck Police Lieutenant Donald Schaefer pushed his live-in girlfriend down the stairs, punched her in the face, and twice threatened to kill her, once in front of a sheriff's deputy, a prosecutor said Monday in court. Schaefer, 50, was charged with terrorizing, a felony, and assault, a misdemeanor. He has been placed on administrative leave with pay pending the outcome of the case. Captain Ralph Mauder, the acting Bismarck police chief, said, We take this very seriously. Our job is to protect and to serve the peace. Mauder also said, The charges are serious enough that Schaefer could lose his job. The article goes on to say, Schaefer was released on a $2,500 unsecured bond shortly after his initial court appearance Monday. An unsecured bond means that he didn't have to pay any money, just promised to appear in court. As conditions of his release, Schaefer also had to turn over all of his firearms, not use alcohol, not contact the victim. Officers said that Schaefer was intoxicated when they arrested him, a prosecutor said. In a follow-up article, Bismarck Tribune reporter Janelle Cole reported that Schaefer's girlfriend, the victim of the assault, had obtained an emergency protection order against him. The girlfriend said Don Schaefer had pushed her down some stairs and then started hitting her in the face with his fist. He was yelling he was going to kill me, the girlfriend stated. And as she slid down, Schaefer pulled her back up and punched her in the face again. Her nose now bleeding, the girlfriend had said, I think you broke my nose, to which Schaefer replied, I hope so. Schaefer then again threw her down the steps and told her to leave or he would kill her. Luckily, the girlfriend had called friends somehow, and the sheriff's department arrived and witnessed and overheard Schaefer's threats towards her. Don Schaefer was arrested and thrown in jail, where he would stay for three days. His girlfriend also stated that Schaefer once informed her that attempting to leave him would be futile because there would be nowhere she could go that he could not find her. 
All of this eventually led to Schaefer resigning and taking an early retirement that year. He sent a resignation letter to the Bismarck PD just two hours before the Internal Review Board was to meet to discuss what action they would take against him, that is, as an employee of the city. His hasty resignation put an end to the internal review process at Bismarck PD, and Schaefer received the department's full retirement package. But that was just the internal process regarding his employment. You're wondering, what about the legal process, the criminal charges? Schaefer was facing a felony for terrorizing and a misdemeanor for assault. Well, let me tell you what happened with all of that. Schaefer was offered and accepted a plea that basically worked like this. If he would plead guilty, the prosecution would reduce the original felony of terrorizing to a misdemeanor of menacing. He did receive a one-year sentence to the State Department of Corrections, but here's the thing, all but 30 days were suspended. He had spent three days in jail when initially arrested, so after taking that into account, Don Schaefer was left with 27 days of incarceration. But he wasn't incarcerated. Instead, he was sentenced to do 27 days of community service. He was also required to have no contact with the victim, to refrain from using alcohol, attend an anger management program, and to attend Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I've learned about Lieutenant Don Schaefer of the Bismarck Police Department, whom Shelley claimed was harassing her at the Burnt Creek Club. And as you already know, nowhere in Shelley's file does it state that Schaefer was ever asked anything about Shelley Juleson, not even a, hey Don, what's the deal with you giving Shelley a hard time at the Burnt Creek Club? He wasn't asked in 1994 or during Connor's investigation from 2005 to 2010, nor during Carvel's reinvestigation in 2016, at least not according to her police file. So what do we do with all of this information? We can ask ourselves, could Schaefer be responsible for Shelley's disappearance? And obviously we don't know, and Don Schaefer is not alive today, so he's not able to speak for or defend himself on this subject. He definitely was a man who had some problems. He seemed to want to control women and assert power over them, and clearly he could snap while intoxicated. And if you can punch a woman in the face several times with your fist, if you can threaten to kill her, well, we must deduce that he would at least be capable of doing so. That is, it's not out of the question by any means that he was capable, especially while intoxicated. As far as him having an opportunity for the crime, we know that Shelley didn't like the man, so it seems less likely she would be willingly in a space where she was alone with him, and there's no indication that they were meeting privately or anything like that. On the other hand, Don Schaefer wasn't just anyone. He was a cop. He certainly had the means and opportunity to stop or detain pretty much anyone if he set his mind to it. And Don Schaefer's mind wasn't always in the right place, as he clearly demonstrated in 1996 when he was arrested. What do you think? I recently got an email from a listener, a listener who listens very closely and carefully. I want to share that email with you because everything she brought up are things that I've had on my mind too, and so perhaps it's been on your mind as well. As I said, I want to share an email I got from a very sharp and attentive listener. Her name is Susan, and she lives in Minnesota. 
Her first question is this, read by my colleague Trisha Terinskas at The Vault. Regarding the driver's seat adjustment, wouldn't the pictures taken at the Comfort Inn parking lot before being towed to the police station show whether or not the seat was too far back? That's a great question, Susan, because as you know, Jaden Woodworth told us his father recalls that when he first witnessed Shelley's car after it was discovered, the driver's seat in Shelley's car was too far back, suggesting someone taller than Shelley had driven it. Unfortunately, we don't know when Kevin first saw the Thunderbird. It likely wasn't at the Comfort Inn Hotel, but later when the police had had it for a few days. Now, I have not seen, nor do I have copies of all the photos taken at the Comfort Inn. They do exist, though. Rob Carvel, who worked on this case in 2016, noted the following. Read here by my colleague, Chris Chrisman. September 16, 2016. With assist from Detective Johnson, all evidence from the case was checked, providing just some film negatives apparently taken when Michelle's car was found. And they must have had those negatives developed again, because in 2019, an investigator named Betts considered Kevin's claims about the car seat and stated the following in a report. Kevin said, quote, the driver's seat was way back and Michelle was five foot four inches. She couldn't have been driving the car, end quote. I thought this was odd because I looked at the photographs for this case and couldn't notice these observations in the pictures. So, to answer your question, Susan, yes, there are photos. I have not seen them, but at least according to one investigator, they do not demonstrate that the car seat was too far back. Moving on to Susan's next observation. There's something about Tony's recollections that just don't make sense. I thought Shelley's friend called her Tuesday morning and they spoke from 11 a.m. to noon. If true, how could Tony have been on the phone with her from 10 a.m. to noon that same morning? I agree, Susan. Those two phone conversations cannot have taken place simultaneously. So my thought on that is simply that one of them, Tony or her friend Holly, got the time wrong. Or possibly one of those phone conversations never actually took place. Unfortunately, there's no indication in the police file that investigators ever attempted to get a list of Shelley's landline phone activity. Susan's next question needs some setup, I think. You'll recall that investigators questioned two railroad workers who were thrown out of the Comfort Inn swimming pool at 3 a.m., Wednesday morning, about 15 hours after Shelley dropped off Jaden. They were in the company of two women. Someone at the Comfort Inn later made a comment that one of the girls thrown out of the pool resembled the photo of Shelley in the missing persons flyer. In my interview with Tony Holm, he said that after listening to this podcast, he did recall Shelley once calling him to pick her up because she had been thrown out of the swimming pool at a hotel. Her clothes were wet, and he said he picked her up dried her clothes for her, and in the morning drove her either home or back to her car. He couldn't remember which. But Tony told us he recalls it being two days before she went missing, Sunday night, early Monday morning, not Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. And remember, Shelley's Sunday night is a bit of a mystery to us. We don't know what she did between 1 a.m. Monday and 10 a.m. Monday. She was last seen that night standing outside the Elbow Room bar at 1 a.m. talking to two men, railroad workers. 
Next thing we know, she picked up Jaden at the babysitter's the next morning at 10 a.m. Her babysitter said Shelley was in a really good mood when she picked up Jaden. But Tony Holm told investigators in 1994 that Shelley called him around 3 a.m. that morning and said Kevin had done something to her, but she wouldn't say what. Now, all these years later, Tony Holm now feels or recalls that it was actually Sunday night that Shelley was thrown out of the pool. Here is Susan's question. Why would Shelley call Tony to pick her up from the Comfort Inn? He said her clothes were wet and it was cold. Was his point that he'd come with his car all heated up? Did she sit in her car and wait for him? I'm sure she didn't wait in the hotel because they were kicked out. If she just wanted to spend the night with him, she could have driven herself. He said he picked her up at the Comfort Inn around midnight Sunday, but she didn't leave the elbow room until 1 a.m. Again, great points, Susan, and there are basically two things to touch on here. First of all, regarding the time, you're correct. If this all went down Sunday, as Tony told us on the podcast, and that's a big if, because again, he never mentioned this in 1994. On the contrary, he said Shelley called him on 3 a.m. that night about something else. Considering how many years have passed, I suppose I've just been assuming that if Tony's new recollection about the swimming pool event is true and accurate, and that it was early Monday morning, he simply has the time wrong and Shelley called him much later that night. Tony said several times in my interview with him that it's been a long time and he couldn't be certain of some of his memories. But what I find most interesting about Tony's recent swimming pool recollection is that it contradicts completely what he told law enforcement back in 1994. He told them, just as he told everyone who knew Shelley, that she had called him Sunday night, early Monday morning, and said that Kevin had done something to her, but she wouldn't tell him what. Back in 1994, Tony never mentioned anything to law enforcement about Shelley and a swimming pool incident. Now, in 94, investigators did speak with two railroad workers who stayed at the Comfort Inn on that Tuesday night, and they confirmed getting thrown out of the pool in the company of two women. But both men claimed that neither of the women were Shelley. They also said that they were never at the Elbow Room bar, but instead borrowed bucks, which, interestingly, was just a minute's walk from the then location of the Elbow Room. So, yes, Susan, this whole swimming pool thing is very interesting when you stop to think about it. Some things line up logically and others do not at all. Of course, we need to remind ourselves that memory plays tricks on all of us all the time. It's a very tricky thing, and the longer time goes on, the trickier it gets. But what lines up? Well, think about it. Shelley standing talking to two railroad workers at 1 a.m. early Monday morning, and then a story of two railroad workers getting thrown out of the Comfort Inn swimming pool at 3 a.m. It's the place where Shelley's car will be found later in the parking lot, and someone will say that one of the girls looked like Shelley. All of that lines up, but Tony's recollection of it being early Monday does not line up. The event occurred on early Wednesday morning, according to law enforcement, according to the two railroad workers themselves, and according to the Burlington Northern investigator who originally got this information from the Comfort Inn. Of course, we must acknowledge that Tony's memory of a swimming pool incident at a hotel could be true, but just be an entirely different occasion. Although it's interesting that he told us on the podcast he thought it was Sunday night before she went missing. Are we confused yet? I agree, it's a lot to digest. 
Thanks again, Susan, for that email. And recently, I asked the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group what questions they have about this case. One part of the story that a lot of people, including myself, wonder about is what was in those 104 missing pages that Lieutenant Heinley had removed from the file way back in 1994. And why in the world were they removed? Sergeant Walls wrote the following on his police report on August 29, 1994. Lieutenant Heinley directed me to remove attachments I-1 through I-104 from this report and take Michelle's car to the impound lot. Recently, I reached out to the Bismarck PD in the hopes of getting an interview or other opportunity to ask some questions. Shelley's case is open and ongoing, and so they have no obligation to share any further information, but I was hoping to pose some questions. I reached out to the press contact there, and I left messages with the current detectives, but I haven't gotten a call back. So I think what I will do at this point, I'll just ask the questions here and now, publicly. Here are some of our questions. Number one, is there an explanation for why Lieutenant Heinley directed the removal of Section I of Shelley's file? Number two, was Lieutenant Don Schaefer ever questioned about potential knowledge of Michelle's disappearance? Number three, has Rick Snell ever been spoken with? You'll recall that Rick Snell worked near the Burnt Creek Club and didn't return to work on Wednesday, August 3rd. He lived across the street from the Elbow Room, he frequented the Elbow Room and the Burnt Creek Club, and he has a criminal record. He also resurfaced in Bismarck the day after Shelley's car was found at the Comfort Inn. There is no indication in Shelley's file that Snell has ever been spoken to, although Detective Bill Connor did seem to find him of interest. It's been a long, long time since anyone has seen or heard from Michelle Juleson. Her parents, Wes and Linda, they say they will never give up on finding some answers. Michelle's son, Jaden, continues to walk this earth without a definitive answer. Did my mom leave me or was she taken? What happened? It's very likely that there are people alive today who could answer that question for Jaden and his grandparents, Wes and Linda. I'll end this episode and likely this season too, unless there's something breaking in this story. This is likely the last episode about Michelle for a while. I'll end it all with some things I would do if I were the current investigator at Bismarck PD assigned to this case. Number one, I would find and question Rick Snell. Number two, I would work on identifying the two railroad workers Shelley met at the Elbow Room Bar. I'd re-interview the persons previously spoken with, and I'd pursue new leads by exploring records with Burlington Northern Railroad, if possible. Number three, I would re-interview Tony Holm and Jenny Yancer. Number four, I would definitely re-interview the two men who were kicked out of the Comfort Inn pool at 3 a.m. on Wednesday, August 3rd. Number five, I would explore the possibility of using cadaver dogs or appropriate technology to search the former property of Richard Woodworth and the neighboring lot previously owned by Kevin Woodworth. And finally, number six, I would officially apologize to Kevin Woodworth and his son, Jaden, for in later years inaccurately claiming that Kevin Woodworth and Richard Woodworth suspiciously reported Shelley missing too early on Tuesday, August 2nd, 
when they in fact did not report her missing until the evening of Wednesday, August 3rd, some 33 hours after she was last seen. I know I am not a law enforcement officer, and so I don't know the feasibility of any of these ideas. Maybe I'm just an idealist, so I don't know. Call all of the above a wild idea by an idealist, but from what I've read and from what I've learned on this journey, there is still work to be done, still stones left unturned in the case of missing Michelle Juleson, otherwise known as Shelley. Thank you all again. I will see you next time. I so appreciate you listening to Dakota Spotlight. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, written, researched, and recorded by me, James Walner. Special thanks to my colleagues at Forum Communications for lending us their voices. That's Jim Manny, Trisha Tarinskas, Chris Kurzman, and Jeremy Fugelberg. Music by Wowza in Kalamazoo. You can check them out by searching Wowza in Kalamazoo on bandcamp.com. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group or follow me on Twitter at Dakota Spotlight. Once again, until next time, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.